1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Matt Lodder, on his new book, Painted People. Humanity in 21 Tattoos. Dr Matt Lodder is the UK's foremost expert on the history of tattooing. A senior lecturer in art history and theory at the University of Essex, his research primarily concerns the history of Western tattooing from the 17th century to the present day. He has given invited lectures at museums around the world, and has written about tattooing for publications including The Guardian and History Today. And his major exhibition, British Tattoo Art Revealed, toured the UK from 2017 to 2020. And today we're going to talk about Matt's debut book, which is Painted People, Humanity in 21 Tattoos. Matt, welcome to Little Atoms.
0: Hi, hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a, such a pleasure to be on such an august podcast. Yeah.
2: Tell me, first of all, what the idea is behind the book then.
0: I initially set out, I think, to write a quite straightforward like history of tattooing. But I think very quickly, right, it became a kind of history through tattooing. So rather than being a kind of, you know, very kind of insular look at, at the names and people and places involved in the history of tattooing, it's actually, I think, a way of saying, what do tattoos tell us about the people and the places and the cultures and the moments in time um, that they were produced? right and in some senses, it's sort of a, I guess, a test of the bigger claims of art history, right? So we can do similar stuff with, you know, church altarpieces and art in great country houses. And I guess if if it's true that we can sort of learn something about the past through that kind of art, I guess I want to say we must be able to do that too, with the kind of intimate and personal and painful and permanent stuff that people get on their bodies.
2: And so what is Academic studies of tattooing been like up to this point?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, like I think it's been frust- frustrating from my point of view as someone who became a academic after you know, because I wanted to get interested in tattooing. And most people who academically write about tattooing, although not all by any means, but certainly like lots of them, are coming at it the other way around You know, they're academics who are interested in other things, and they want to kind of you know they think tattooing is going to be Yeah, a nice busman's holiday or some interesting kind of diversion for what they're usually doing and you know so disciplinarily that's been largely disciplines like criminology and sociology anthropology psychology history of medicine but art history art historians in particular haven't been that interested in tattooing even though you know the kind of idea of tattooing as art or this kind of term body art is quite familiar to us and I think, I guess I want to argue as well, the, the book isn't sort of super heavy on the academia. It buries it underneath, <laughs> hopefully, a quite readable set of stories. But, you know, I want to sort of say that looking at tattooing from this different perspective, by paying attention to the images and, and the individuals um, and looking at them and thinking about them as this kind of, you know, these, these images, these cultural indexes, we get to somewhere different than if we just ask questions like, why do you do that to yourself? Or, you know, what does that tell us about how... um how crazy you are, which is often the starting point, if not the finishing point, of lots of other academic research on tattooing, you know.
2: You burst a few myths around tattooing throughout the book, one of which we'll come back to right at the end. But there's a particular one in terms of looking back on, on the history through the eyes of researchers or, you know, archaeologists or whoever who have, who have sort yeah. of come across tattooing, is this idea that we both know that you know, literally the painted people of the title (laughs) of the book is what a description of ancient Britons or Picts were. So we know, in this country in particular, that tattooing has a long and storied history. But at the same time, people hold in their heads this idea that actually it's something that was discovered by Captain Cook from like the Far East or Polynesia or something.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And and this is, something that I certainly believed for a long time because I'd read it in all the same books that everyone else had. And it took a colleague of mine, the work of a colleague of mine, Anna Friedman, a, a long time ago, more than a decade ago when I first encountered her work, to kind of go, oh, wait a minute, there's something <laughs> something happening here that's that's quite confusing. Because, yeah, like either you'd read uh, that tattooing is this thing that didn't exist at all in Europe ever until those encounters in Polynesia in the 18th, late 18th century, or in the slightly more nuanced version that like there had been tattooing perhaps known about, but it had been entirely forgotten by the time we got to those colonial encounters of the 18th century. But yeah, as I lay out in the book, even though ironically, it probably isn't true that the pics were tattooed, the current best evidence is that they were actually more likely to have been body painted than, than actually permanently tattooed. It was definitely the case that Certainly around the time of the encounter with the New World in the Americas, you know, the end of the fifteenth century, every kind of British academic, British antiquarian worth his salt would have been reading Roman sources which talks about the tattooed ancient Britons and was comparing the tattooed people that were being discovered or encountered for the first time in the New World in the Americas, up and down, you know, the continent, and comparing those tattooed people with the tattooed people of their own imagined past or the past that they'd read about in those antiquarian sources. I mean, even places like, you know, Marco Polo and good kind of solid pieces of English uh, historiography like William Candon and Ranulf Higdon, these kind of real central books of the history of, of the British Isles, they all talk about how the ancient Britons had tattooing. And like, even if we then want to go, okay, well, that doesn't leave us much of a gap between about 1500 and about 1800, although it's a fairly decent period of time for tattooing to be forgotten. But then as we've been able to start filling in the gaps with, with new research of various kinds, you know, as I point out in the book, we realise that there's a portrait of a painted Inuit woman, a, a woman from sort of what is modern day Canada, hanging in the Royal Academy in the centre of London, in the exact moment that Captain Cook first sets foot in Tahiti to supposedly discover tattooing, which I find so interesting and, and puzzled me for so long, because then the question obviously arises, like, well, okay, why did we forget? Where did this amnesia come from? And That was something I also puzzled with more specifically over the course of writing of this book. And and then of course, you know, as I sort of say, I think we have to conclude it's not amnesia really uh, in a sort of straightforward sense. It's actually a kind of byproduct of changing social attitudes, changing scientific attitudes, changing relationships between the Western European empires and the, and the places that not just Britain, France, Germany were colonizing and inhabiting in the 18th century. And yeah, the story of tattooing begins to take on a different kind of rhetorical position in the British imagination at that time as compared to how it did in the 1500s you know I know you're a good humanist Neil right so the the early story of tattooing in the Americas was hey this is a pretty humanist thing it's like look these people we're finding in in the Americas they're weird and they are in some senses quote less evolved or less developed than us but we have something in common with them, and actually tattooing shows exactly what we have in common with those people by the time we get to the Pacific encounters and the colonization of, of the Pacific, the story is very different, and tattooing becomes something which differentiates white europeans, modern white europeans from from people in, in that part of the world you know
2: one of the one of the other ideas is that tattooing is something that's like always been subcultural. And, and again, this is something that you sort of you puncture at various points throughout the books. But I wonder if one of those reasons may be there's such a history and you touch on it again and again and again of punitive tattooing, tattooing as punishment through many different yeah. cultures. So tell us something about that, the idea of like punishment tattoos in general.
0: Yeah, well, look, it's definitely the case, right, that tattooing has not been, whilst, whilst I think basically tattooing has been everywhere always, more or less, it certainly hasn't been mainstream or acceptable or, or normative everywhere uh, always. And, you know, in places including, for example, the ancient Greek empire, the ancient Persian empire, the ancient Chinese empire, these big kind of foundational empires of, you know, that led to the modern world, Tattooing certainly was something which wasn't really done. (laughs) Certainly wasn't done in any kind of mainstream, culturally straightforward way. And where it was used, where that technology of kind of putting a permanent mark in the skin was used, it often was for stigmatization and and for purposes of, um, yeah, marking someone out as different. I mean, all of those places I just mentioned did talk about their neighbouring empires and their neighbouring cultural groupings, their neighbouring tribes, if you will, as you know, the tattooing was a way to demarcate them from us. And of course, in that context, like tattooing gets to be a way of, if you transgress the norms to kind of make you somehow visibly less, less than acceptable in polite society, I suppose. So we get, for example, all these stories, you know, in, in ancient China, we have these um, literal list of, of transgressions, which are called ink crimes, a sort of list of, of crimes, including, for example, theft, which result. Particularly for repeat offenders in um, stigmatizing marks to be often put on the face, so it's very obvious and recognizable that you are a you're a criminal or a member of the underclass. there was obviously a lot of tattooing of slaves as well, including again, for example, in ancient Rome, Yeah, slavery who run away, for example, would have their transgressions, their punishments tattooed on their faces and you'd even end up you know in an interesting case like in Japan, where in ancient Japan particularly where tattooing was particularly associated with uh, the indigenous peoples, the Ainu. And as, you know, Japan moved into a more uh, homogenous, more kind of towards the modern period, as that thing we, I guess, now imagine as Japanese tattooing developed, the more decorative kind of woodcut style stuff developed in the 18th century, one of the reasons why people who had those tattoos done left gaps and still traditionally those people who are getting traditional Japanese tattooing of that kind have gaps in their armpits is because that's where criminals would be punishment tattooed. And so in order to avoid the accusation that you were somehow trying to hide your criminal past by covering up your criminal tattoo, you'd leave a gap in your otherwise very heavily tattooed body in a space where a punishment tattoo would be uh, applied. And of course, like, you know, tattooing works pretty well for those purposes. It works pretty well for punishment and stigmatization because You can't easily get rid of it. I mean, even the British Army used to tattoo deserters. It is a way of kind of immediately signifying to people that you are uh, a transgressor of a various kind. And so there's a kind of deterrent effect, but also a kind of social hygiene effect, right? Like if you know that this person is a repeat offender, a thief, or even in some cases an adulterer in some cultural context, uh, you might be best, best served to avoid them, right?
2: throughout the book you you take each chapter looks at like a sort of vignette of a often a particular person um through which you look at the um the history of tattooing and and we're gonna we're gonna look at some of those chapters when we get into the second half but before we do that anybody that knows you matt will know that you you have the odd tattoo yourself um, (laughs) yeah this book is it's it's not a you know a, a memoir of of your own journey into tattooing but you do tell a story about your great-grandmother. So just tell us something about her.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's the sort of 21st uh, story, I suppose. She ends up getting moved from a prologue, actually, from the original draft, because for the flow of the storytelling in the book. But there's 20 chapters throughout history, and she's the kind of 21st, I suppose, because she was really the the anchor point for me and, and how I got into all this nonsense in the first place. The story, so it goes, was she was born in Kent, in uh, the latter half of the 19th century. I never met her, actually. She died before I was born. Daughter of a laborer. So, a pretty kind of working class, manual laboring kind of family. And the story goes, as, I was, as it was told by my grandma, she came home one day and her, um, her younger brother, my, my great uncle Billy, had a tattoo machine. It's around about 1900, the first few years of the 20th century. And he said to her, basically, like, hey, little sister, I've got this tattoo machine. Or hey, sorry, hey, big sister, I've got this tattoo machine. Can I tattoo you? And she apparently said, will it come off? (laughs) And he said, yes, (laughs) which of course it didn't. And she had this tattoo on her wrist, her initials. Her name was Ethelwyn Darby. And um, yeah, reportedly, you know, as far as my grandma told me, absolutely hated it, kept it covered up. She ended up moving to Australia and even the, the fierce Australian summer heat would keep her tattoo covered up. And that was always told to me, you know, as a story to try and put me off getting tattooed. But I just, I just fell in love with it really, you know, as a kid, it really made me just get so fascinated with tattooing. And as I got older and as I became a tattoo historian, I suppose, and started getting more involved in the tattoo industry, something was sort of really bugging me about that story, which is where did my great uncle get a tattoo machine from? And another one of those myths, you know, that you referred to earlier on is like, for example, that tattooing was really underground for so long. And you couldn't buy equipment unless you knew a tattoo artist. And, you know, now that we live in an era of, of eBay and Amazon and, and AliExpress and anyone can get tattoo machines willy-nilly, it's a really, we're in a really bad place. And I thought, well, where would, where would a young kind of teenage, tween-age boy, I suppose, in the early 20th century have got a tattoo machine from? And in a private collection in a, a tattoo museum up in Manchester, I, just, I was shown basically by the guy that owns it, this page of a catalogue which was for Gamage's department store, the kind of Victorian or Edwardian equivalent of Debenhams, I suppose, or or, or Harrods. Huge department store sold everything from furniture to clothing, to cycles, to guns, to toys. And in several editions of these, and they're very rare, very hard to find, very few of them survive in libraries. And I've had to really sort of have a Long standing set of searches on eBay and other sites for over a decade to get a hold of one of these for myself, which is published in the book. There was basically available over the counter, initially as electrical novelties uh, alongside sort of wind up boutonniers and things. And then latterly as essentially professional equipment sold alongside things like telegraph machines and telephones, tattoo machines, basically over the counter to anyone who wanted to walk in and pay money to get one. And so, you know, I can't be sure that. It was exactly with the gamages machine that, that my grandma was tattooed. But like, certainly we have there hard evidence that for a few years at least, over the counter in central London, to any kind of young boy or or anyone at all, I suppose, who had a few bob to spare, tattoo machines over the counter. And I think things like that, single bits of paper like that, stories like that, that completely go against anyone's or most people's instincts about the history of this stuff. I really, I guess what the book's about, right? Like starting with the myths in a lot of cases and going back to some of the primary source evidence or some of the real new interesting work being done by colleagues of mine who work in other more specialised fields of archaeology, for example. And just seeing what this evidence, what this material culture stuff tells us about all of those instincts so many of us have about who gets tattooed, why, when, what with, why, what for. And I almost sort of tell that story a bit as a superhero secret agent origin story, right? Like it begins as a place where this fascination begins and, and almost ends up full circle by teaching me something really interesting about what I was missing.
2: Yeah, listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Matt Lodder, and we're talking about his book, Painted People, Humanity in 21 Tattoos. And Matt, I said I wanted to dive into some of the stories about the people in the book, and, and we'll conflate some of these just so we can we can get yeah. through a few in the limited time. So first of all, I wanted to talk about both Otsi the Iceman and the <laughs> Altai Princess, two yeah. examples where we have latterly discovered ancient tattooing.
0: Yeah. I mean, Otsi is a great one for a number of reasons. I mean, he is as things stand, although I think the, the Egyptian mummies, which are in the second chapter of the book, are some of them, I think, are poised any day now to be radiocarbon dated a little bit older than Otsi. But at the moment, as far as the published literature is concerned, Otsi is our oldest tattooed specimen that survives to the present day, five and a half thousand years old, early uh, Bronze Age, so Copper Age, found in the 90s, basically between uh, Austria and Italy. And yeah, sort of covered in these tally marks. mysterious guy. We know very little about, almost nothing, basically about his cultural tradition we have to speculate about what his tattoos might have been for or might have meant. The kind of consensus amongst people that study him very closely is that they are likely kind of medico-magical to some degree. They, They exist on sites of his body where he has, for example, degenerative risk conditions. And so there's this theory, I think pretty plausible, that the tattooing is either intended to actually, actually, in quote marks, work to heal the tattooing or or encode or generate some kind of magical response, which would heal his pain or alleviate his pain. And yeah, I think, again, the fact that he's from Europe is also surprising to people who imagine that tattooing is is from elsewhere. Lots of interesting work ongoing, lots of really interesting discussions about what, how his tattoos might have been done and, and trying you know, lots of lots of new research, trying to figure out where he fits into these timelines. And then, yeah, the Altai princess, an example from... Uh, several thousand years later, it's about three thousand years later than him, um, but in a similar circumstance, survived. Uh, so Otzi basically died in the ice. By you know he was shot in the back, it seems, um, and left to die on this mountainside. The Altai princess Okshibala was actually buried in the permafrost up in Siberia. But her story is similar insofar as, you know, climate change and the melting of glaciers and the melting of of ice is revealing things, bodies like this that have been entombed in the ice for so many years. She's really interesting for all kinds of reasons, partly on the one hand, because she has these amazingly decorative tattoos, which are of these mystical beasts, which actually match and reflect very nicely some of the other decorative art, which we have from her cultural tradition the Pazarik people, who are a sort of subculture of a wider trans-Siberian group of cultures called the uh, Scythians. The other thing that I think is so fascinating about her, and I write about it in the book, is that she became this interesting kind of battleground for like contemporary post-Soviet Russian identity. So no one really, although there's a bit of argument between the Italians and the Austrians about who gets to claim Otsi, <laughs> um, the kind of claim over the ancestry of the Altai princess Ochi Bala, as she gets called by the local people up in that region, is really fascinating. The Russians' DNA tested her and basically said, well, she's not ethnically similar, you know, genetically similar to the current people that live there. That proves that, hey, you people that live there now, the Altai people, you don't have any ancestral claim over the, over the land. By contrast, the Altai people have basically given her this name, Ochibala, which is a, a literal specific name of a figure from their folk history and claim her as a kind of symbol of their national identity. And in the darkest and strangest place, or one of the strangest places the book gets us to, uh, as, a, as I said, a history through tattooing, is a contemporary debate about where to put pipelines <laughs> through Trans-Siberian Russia. So essentially, right, there was a big call in the region to repatriate her body from the uh, more westerly Russian research institution where she, her body had been taken, and to bring her back home to be put into a museum of indigenous people in... Uh, in Altai, up in the Ural Mountains. And in one of the most cynical things I've ever heard, really, Gazprom, the big national gas company, who would normally sort of be siding with the Kremlin on the issues like this, decided to give the Altai people money to build a museum of indigenous art and culture, basically as a kind of bribe or as a sweetener to local politicians. It's, very, it's an autonomous region. It has local, poli- you know, local indigenous people running it politically. And Gazprom found they wouldn't get permission to dig their pipeline unless they sweetened up the local people there. So it's this astonishingly cynical move. But the only reason she, well, the, basically the main reason she was repatriated as a symbol of great national homecoming was so that this gas company could dig a massive pipeline somewhere they ordinarily might not be able to do. And yeah, that's a, I think that's an interesting example of of where the book can get us to, right? There's lots of strange places in, in the book that you may not expect to get to in a book about tattoo history.
2: Coming forward quite a, quite a few centuries,
0: <laughs> I, w- I wanted
2: to talk about Bertie, the um, the, the Prince of Wales, and yeah. the enduring, even to today, popularity of like the Easter tattoos.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, I love this story because it was pretty famous like in his lifetime so he was he was tattooed in 1862 he was sent off to jerusalem basically after prince albert died like victoria sent him out to basically grow up right he was a bit of a wayward child and while he was there he got tattooed as had been traditional in the region for several hundred years with a jerusalem cross this this tattoo as you said of 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 easter or certainly of pilgrimage and we have records of pilgrimage tattooing of that kind in the holy lands and specifically in jerusalem going back to the late 1500s so bertie was kind of in good company it didn't really become public knowledge until the 1880s when it was the story was published in a french magazine but it, it was clear that his tattoos also inspired george V, um, his son uh, actually both of his sons albert victor as well to get tattooed not just in jerusalem themselves but also in japan that was so famous and such a kind of important part of the story of George's life that when he was coronated, it became this real sort of picture perfect moment from his life story and inspired essentially the creation of the modern tattoo industry, right? Everyone wants to be like the Royals or certainly did in the uh, end of the 19th into the 20th century. And I think it's really interesting again, that we get and the book traces this, you know, from essentially the Franciscans trying to monetize jerusalem as a uh as a commercial as well as a spiritual destination right you could go and of course experience all those biblical scenes for yourself but also spend a bit of money on getting tattooed or buying trinkets combining that deep desire to express your sincerity and your religious belief with a you know very comprehensive comprehensible desire to modernize to you know get tattooed to remind you of your holidays basically to put it kind of glibly but from that, over centuries and over centuries of quite sort of stable traditions, the iconography of those tattoos stay pretty similar for a couple of hundred years. We end up really kickstarting modern tattooing. And I think Edward and um, Edward VII and George V and other members of the royal family that were tattooed didn't tend to show them off very much. They were certainly you know, not um, showing them off. They were hidden under clothing most of the time. But even today, I think if we have an idea of tattooing as this, you know, as you said, kind of criminal thing or, or, or subcultural thing, the idea that at least two kings of England and, you know, a Duke of Edinburgh and several other important members of the House of Lords, for example, were tattooed, comes as a surprise to people and starts to, to destabilise what people imagine these histories are like. I mean, there's a great picture in the book, where I think it's a great picture of a pilgrim, uh, a German pilgrim, actually, as it happens to Jerusalem in the uh, middle of the 17th century. His tattoos, you know, 100 years before Captain Cook, 350 or so years ago, basically wouldn't look out of place on a Premiership footballer, right?
2: Yeah, and actually, that brings <laughs> me to um, that brings me to where I wanted to end up. And I said we were going to come back at the end to to another one of these myths. Now, Matt, when I saw months ago that you had got this book coming out, I was really excited to talk to you about it. And all the time, I was thinking about I was obviously going to ask you at some point why is tattooing so popular now, Matt? <laughs> and then, of course, I read the book, and there's a bit right at the end where you sort of eviscerate some poor anonymous BBC interviewer yeah. who you talk to. <laughs> basically asks you this same question and says, well, I, I have to put my hand up and say, if we were having this conversation, I don't know, in the 1980s, I would have said the same thing. Isn't tattooing yeah. for sailors and criminals? Why is it suddenly becoming popular? And while well, there is no doubt that when I was growing up, one of the things that you know my parents would have said was that you know if you have tattoos, you have trouble finding a job, for instance, and clearly this is something that has changed a lot in this day and age, obviously for the better, but nonetheless, this idea that again, you talk about this in the book that this idea that tattooing is fashionable now and it wasn't necessarily a few years previous is something that we see again and again and again.
0: Yeah, and this has again been a kind of constant refrain, a bit of a kind of catchphrase of mine, I suppose. And I've sort of joked that I hope that the book's out now that no one will ever post that cliche again. But of course, I'm not naive enough to think I won't be answering (laughs) or or encountering this cliche for the rest of my career because it's been so persistent. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. And we have to be really clear here that tattooing, Whilst, as I said, it's been kind of everywhere, always, and in a particular Western context, this cliche, this idea that tattooing now is different to tattooing in some past, and it's moved away from some sort of imagined demographic constraint. Even though I imagine that this is a pretty standard thing, I guess the point is that even you know, even when tattooing's been, for example, patronized by kings, it's never been quite risen to the stage of mainstream and 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 totally acceptable, and so. That said, you know, tattooing now is more visible than ever. We live in a more casualized age when dressing more casually at work, for example, is more acceptable. Tattooing is, is more visible in all kinds of ways. And, you know, one of the things I think is worth saying about that is that The present is connected to the past and we can see how we got here. But there's no clear moment when the then is separated from the now, if that makes any sense. Right. Like I pointed out in the book, one of the things I quote from the 1980s, 1981, just after I was born, this idea that, oh, my God, university lecturers have got tattoos now. (laughs) And so, yes, it probably would have been different to people like me who've got tattoos on their face working in universities. But the idea itself is, is at least 40 years old in that case. So yeah, that's, that's the lesson, I think. Tattooing now and tattooing in the past is always slightly strange. And I think part of the irony here is that even as people have been saying it's more mainstream and acceptable and fashionable, it's strangeness remains. And that whilst we live in a particular kind of moment where tattooing is booming and visible, the past is is not uh, different or severed at least in a clear way from the past right that would be how I try and explain it and I think it, it's almost funny and it always makes me laugh when I find another one of these you know uh, my favorite one I think I cite in the book from 100 years ago 1926 Vanity Fair magazine tattooing has passed from the savage to the sailor from the sailor to the landsman and is now to be found beneath many a tailored shirt, right? And that's a hundred years ago, and we're still having the same cliches put in the in the tabloids, literally as we speak, right? I mean, I've even written some stuff about the book, uh, and and headline writers have put things like this into the headlines. So <laughs> I've been telling people this for a long time, Neil.
2: So I've been talking to Matt Lado. We've been talking about his book, Painted People: Humanity in Twenty-One Tattoos, which is out in the UK from William Collins. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to share it
0: with me. Thank you so, so much, Neil. I really appreciate it.
2: This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.